Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Shekman and Diaz. In this episode, the doctors discuss the newest treatments for diabetic retinal disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. Dr. Shekman, you mentioned before about peripheral hemorrhages. Now, if we examine a patient and they're totally normal, and they, the only thing they have is peripheral hemorrhages, what does that mean to you, especially if maybe the person has a little bit of a belly and they look like, they look kind of like they may get diabetic, that diabetic look, or maybe they're just thin, they look fine, but they have peripheral hemorrhages. What does that mean to you? I'm definitely concerned with peripheral hemorrhages. There's no question about it. We have decreased capillaries out in the periphery. Peripheral hemorrhages is known to be a progression towards worsening of diabetes if they have a diabetic retinopathy or the progress into diabetic retinopathy. You're looking at an area that's more susceptible to capillary dropout. So those hemorrhages may actually get worsened and even develop it changes into a more severe stage and has been even associated with PDR. So by I never really ignore peripheral hemorrhage as a whole. Dr. Diaz, would you agree? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And remember, it's not it's only not di diabetes, ocular ischemic syndrome, there's other conditions that basically can cause peripheral hemorrhages. And to me, uh, there's got to be an explanation for it. If there isn't, then we got to dig a little deeper. So if you see that, you'll send them out for different labs to have them checked out. Depends, right? Is it unilateral? Is it bilateral? But yes, it definitely starts to get me going in terms of, you know, is this, is this related to the diabetes or is this something else? So let's get into that. If it is unilateral, what are you thinking? And what if it's bilateral, what are you thinking? Well, unilateral, first thing that would come to mind, especially on the periphery, I'd look at their IOP and see if it was low. I mean, I'd be thinking about ocular ischemic syndrome. I'd be more concerned about evaluating the carotids, for example. Bilaterally, peripheral lesions, I mean, if, if they're known diabetic, then I probably attribute to that, but also hypertensive changes can lead to it. Um, and um, I, I probably just monitor them closely. So Dr. Diaz with... OCT now, OCT, angi OCT angiography. Tell us about the role that fluorescein angiography has. Is its role diminishing uh, or is it still as, as important as it always has been? You know, I think for me, a wide, a wide field FA is about the most useful thing you can have in a diabetic, right? Because it basically allows you to catch them early, right? You can see the foci of NVI on the periphery before um, it starts to cause problems. Um, so personally, I don't think it's going away, um, but it's it, not everyone has access to wide field fluorescein angiography and, you know, the technology is expensive and so forth. So it, it's, it's about what you can do with it and, and also how early you can start using it in patients. I think that at least the baseline FA is important for every patient and at least maybe once or twice a year, just to monitor those areas of capillary dropout, see if there's small foci of NV that might be forming. And then, you know, that might allow me to start treatment a little earlier, for example, than I would otherwise. You know, I think it classically you think, okay, heme, then proliferous diabetic retinopathy, but the capillary dropout percentage might also play a big role here. And, and uh, personally allowed me to start treatment and talk, at least start talking to them about it sooner so that if I need to, it's not out of the blue, right? And I can show them the images and show them the progression, for example. So I don't think FA is going anywhere, um, but I do think wide field FA in diabetics is the optimum modality. 
And uh, goni gonioscopy, we see hemorrhages. When are you doing gonioscopy to see if there's angle neo? Uh, we're looking, we have to look at the iris very carefully. At what point are you doing gonioscopy on these patients? I think for me personally is if I'm seeing sort of an asymmetry in IOP from one eye to the other, for example, if there is evidence of, of severe nonproliferative diabetic retinopathy, and I just want to be sure that we're not sort of tipping into that, into that neovascular um, area. But I would say for me, IOP is a big driver. Um, you know, it takes a lot for me to pull the gonio <laughs> prism out. Um, but I would say IOP asymmetry, you know, um, a risk of glaucoma, stuff like that. That's what I'm looking at. And Dr. Sheckman, uh, you're more primary care in a way. Are you pulling it out a little bit sooner? I do actually do it as standard for my more severe non-proliferative diabetic cases. Anything that I question to be neo of the iris, I definitely do it. But I do think that the IOP is a major driver. I've actually even had some patients who didn't really have much neo of any in the iris and it swooped right into the angle. And, and Dr. Diaz and I just share a what I like to consider to be a train wreck of a patient with neovascular glaucoma. And those are the ones you wanna avoid because I mean, no matter what he does in trying to inject that patient, which he did and did PRP, we had to send it to our glaucoma surgeon to be able to end up with a tube. And, and they don't end up with a good prognosis no matter what. So if we can try to avoid it, if we can try to find that neo as early as possible and then treat it appropriately, that's the best way prognosis for the patient. So if we, let's talk about treatment now. And let's talk about non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, severe or moderate severe. At what point do we pull the trigger and treat these people? And what are the risks that they're going to progress to proliferative diabetic retinopathy where they could actually lose their vision? Dr. Diaz? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's been a, you know, contested topic as of late. And I think it really, you know, and thankfully we have data now from the Panorama study, which has basically been able to help us answer that question about, you know, can we actually reduce the grade of diabetic retinopathy by treating them with NTOVIGF injections? And you have to think about it. I mean, these are patients who generally have pretty good vision, um, who may have moderate to severe diabetic retinopathy. And we're injecting them, putting them at risk for endophthalmitis, albeit being rare, but it's still there. And you know, this is not a once a year injection. I mean, these are protocols that have to be followed, you know, every eight weeks or every 16 weeks, for example. So for me personally, when I see a patient with moderate or severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, uh, you know, I, I have a more serious discussion with them that we have to monitor them more closely and we may need to start treatment in the future. But I personally have not gone into being aggressive with, with, treating with intravitreal injections at this point. We know that visual acuity outcomes are no different. Um, with the injections, we do see a grade reduction in diabetic retinopathy, but does this translate into, are we actually modifying the disease here? And I'm not sure we are. I think we're sort of just uh, putting a bandaid on it, so to speak, right? Um, so it, it's, I think that we're getting there as we start to develop more longer lasting agents. And I think if you start to tell me, well, I can inject you once a year, and improve your diabetic retinopathy, then I, you know, sign me up. I think that'd be great. But as it stands right now, uh, I think you might have a little more potential to lose than gain here. And I think as long as the patient understands what's going on and you develop a good relationship with them and they're coming back to your, to your visits, I think that's to me reasonable enough that we can watch and then treat as needed in the future. People hear about an injection in the eye and it's like, oh my God, they're like flipping out. If you could explain that process of injecting uh, this medication into somebody's eye and the whole psychology behind it, that's at least for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy conversation, right? I mean, especially in someone who doesn't have any severe, who they themselves don't notice any outward problems with their vision, for example, you know, you're, you're kind of selling them on the, as a sort of a preventative or, or a, you know, we want to stop this before getting wor worse. Uh, you know, I like to be honest with the patient and just give them all the details about the anesthesia, the fact that they shouldn't feel pain, might be some pressure, the eye can be a little red for a week or two. Um, of course, talking about the, the, the risks of the procedure itself with, uh, you know, potential for infection. Um, and, it, and they just kind of let them process it. I, you know, I also tell them, you know, depending on how severe and how urgent it might be for them to kind of go home and read about it and kind of just uh, understand it a bit better before I bring them back in a week or so for the treatment. Once again, at the end of the day, embarking on this treatment 
um, is is not a once, usually not once or twice thing. I mean, this is a relationship you're developing and you're ongoing. You need to have them on board and it doesn't, it doesn't benefit anyone to have them scared about it and not come back to you, right? We know diabetics have a pretty poor follow-up uh, risk for uh, poor follow-up. So you, 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 this is the highest risk portion of your relationship where you're trying to build uh, partnership and um, doing everything you can to make them feel at ease is going to be very important. So let's talk about proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Uh, Dr. Schreckman, if you could explain it again, and then we'll have Dr. Diaz talk about the treatment. Sure. But before that, I just want to add one thing, because we are talking to the optometric community in many cases, and we're talking to patients, is that even though Dr. Diaz may not be treating um, a lot of his senior NPDR patients and may be watching it, there are other retinal specialists that might. Uh, so I think as ODs, we need to be referring these patients no matter what. These are not patients that should be in our office followed up every four months as we did before. And I think Dr. Diaz may pull the trigger on, on different stages. Say somebody, Dr. Diaz, who has a patient with PDR in one eye, or who you know, like you mentioned, you, you mentioned a relationship and you know this is a type of patient that's not compliant. He's not gonna come back to you. You may potentially pull the trigger on that. So I think as ODs, we have to be referring that patient regardless of the treatment and or not because we have various doctors doing different things. So I just kind of wanted to address that. Um, from the PDR point of view, proliferative diabetic retinopathy is a multitude of different things. We're looking at hypoxia, we're looking at oxidative stress, we're looking at an inflammatory perspective, and we're looking at VEGF. VEGF to me, as you mentioned, and I think you alluded to this very well, was we need to have a homostasis of it. The reason why we use anti-VEGF is to be able to have things and, and let the body start healing itself. We know that VEGF increases perfusion to the, anti-VEGF increases perfusion to the body. Patients do better with the medication because you're giving time for the body to heal itself problem with these medications is that they have a short half-life and you've got to keep injecting the patient once a month or once every two months. But the driving factors towards proliferative disease in these new, fragile, immature vasculature is VEGF, is these vascular endothelial growth factors, in addition to inflammation, which is why we have used steroids in the past as well to treat the disease, particularly DME, and of course, hypoxia being the driving factor for the Jeff to start forming. Dr. Diaz, what are the clinical signs that you're seeing uh, when someone would proliferative or even the pre-proliferative that you may pull the trigger on? Start with pre-proliferative. I know we talked a little bit about it before, but with the pre-proliferative and uh, that you may, you, the signs, the clinical signs, and then into the proliferative, just because it gets confusing for the audience. And, and we do have people that are from the public that are watching. Yeah, you know, when, when, you're, when you're at a stage where you're sort of deciding between severe MPDR versus, you know, uh, early proliferative diabetic retinopathy, I'm always looking at the disc. I'm looking to see if there's any sort of neovascularization of the disc, albeit if it's very small, a small foci. Also, how much percentage of the disc is being taken up. Um, you want to look for Irma, you want to look for neovascularization in the posterior pole, you want to look for uh, foci of NV out in the periphery, right? You want to monitor the size of that NV, uh, how many uh, foci there might be and where they're located as well. Um, you know, of course, it goes without saying, if you see any sort of uh, pre-retinal hemorrhages, then you're already at that sort of high-risk PDR stage and treatment should be started as, as soon as possible. But for me, if I see a patient with a severe MPDR, um, I am already talking to them about potentially starting treatment. Um, you know, if they've missed a few appointments, if they, um, you know, are themselves uh, don't show quite a good understanding about their condition, I, I may, I may start treatment, you know, right away with, you know, PRP or so forth, you know, before we get to that stage, right? It's, it's, it's about um, kind of trying to understand at what point they're at and what the trajectory might be. But yes, for sure. You look, I'm looking at the disc to look for any NV because that's highest risk. And then out in the periphery, make sure you see any foci of neovascularization that might cause a problem in the future. And of course, if you're seeing fibrous, uh, fibrovascular proliferation, um, you know, then you're, then you're more, you know, you're higher risk at that point. So you mentioned laser treatment with PRP. Explain why you would use laser treatment and what it does and how does it help the patient and how much time does it actually buy you? 
Yeah, so I mean, it you know, uh, it's pretty amazing. Actually, we're destroying retinal tissue to sort of try and decrease that hypoxic drive, right? It's usually the peripheral areas of the retina that are not receiving blood flow, and we can and we know that the VEGF is is sort of highest at that border between perfused and non-perfused. So by by basically lasering the peripheral retina, you're you're cutting down on that hypoxic drive. You're trying to decrease VEGF load in the eye, which then over time is going to cause a regression of the neovascularization. Right, so basically you're just trying to upend that balance and switch it back into the non-hypoxic state. Um, you know, it's uh, um, it, it's 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 the start of a something serious. I like to do it when I see patients that may be having trouble with follow-up, patients who've missed several appointments before. It is a more permanent treatment. I think PRP is absolutely crucial in the management of diabetic retinopathy. Yeah, I think that some people can be managed only by but be very sure that coming back. if they've missed an appointment, they might only get two strikes with me, not even three. If they miss one or two, just to help prevent any problems in the future. So, and how about combination therapy, PRP? Oh, we're getting some feedback. I'm not sure where that's coming from. You hear that feedback? I do hear it. Not sure where it's coming from. Uh, Diane, I think it might be from you. Uh, we, if we, uh, if we use combination therapy, uh, PRP and anti-VEGF, how often are you using both with these very severe patients? And does that seem to be the best mode of treatment? It, it really depends. If they are actively bleeding and they are in the uh, active proliferative diabetic retinopathy stage, I like to talk to them about combination therapy. We know, you know, the medication is going to work right away. Um, and the laser does take several weeks for the scarring to form, for the hypoxic drive to go down. You know, it's not immediate, right? So if they have vitreous hemorrhage, then I'm more likely to start with injections and then talk to them about PRP, whether or not I can do it at the same visit or shortly thereafter, if the view improves, for example, and I can actually see the peripheral retina for treatment, then I do like to do a combination therapy. Um, some patients, you know, uh, I think it's a few rare patients that may say they don't want laser. I think for the most part, they understand it's a, it's, I tell them it's a chance for us to not need as many injections in the future. If this were to happen again. Um, and I think they kind of get on board at that point, because like you mentioned, you know, injections are not that fun. Um, but it's, it's, I think combination therapy is perfect for the patient who has active, uh, vitreous hemorrhage, pre-retinal bleeding, and where you need to get that VEGF drive down as soon as possible. Um, if the other eye, for example, is not in the proliferative stage, but it might be in the severe stage, I'll talk to them about starting laser treatment in that eye, you know, without the need for injections to hopefully ever need and not need any injections in that eye as well. So it works both ways, but it all depends on when I'm seeing them at what point. And is cryo used anymore? Uh, I, I personally have not seen that in all of my training. I think that it's a very inflammogenic treatment. I think that there might be very, very niche roles where maybe you don't have a view out to the periphery and, and you need to try and, and, and uh, just kill that peripheral retina. But once again, I think this is uh, nowadays uh, with the advent of small incision surgery, I think it's, it's no longer really as, um, as, as, as indicated. And if the patient has rubiosis, which are those dangerous uh, blood vessels that aren't the real, that are not regular blood vessels that could bleed very early. What kind of treatment would you use at that point when you see uh, rubiosis? Well, one thing, I think it would depend, right? Are they in active neovascular glaucoma stage? Is their IOP up? If that's the case, then I would do anti-VEGF and also start PRP treatment as soon as possible. If it's just uh, uh, some small vessels that I'm seeing and I'm worried that they, you know, they're, they're in the proliferative stage at this point, then I think starting PRP and monitoring them over time to, for regression of these vessels is very reasonable as well. It all depends on how fast and how urgent things might be. Let's switch to uh, macular edema. Uh, Dr. Shackman, if you could go over the new, the new nomenclature of macular edema and uh, why did, why is it changed? Why are we calling it something different than we did say 10 years ago? So based on the EDTRS, we used to call it clinical significant macular edema. Uh, that we had the treatment for laser, which was focal laser. And these were patients who didn't have central involved areas and there were 20, 40 or worse. Following RISE, RISE, Vivid, and Vista, and the approval of anti-VEGF, we started calling diabetic macular edema. Specifically, we either have center-involved or non-center-involved macular edema. 
Center involved macular edema is the center of 500 microns, typically having some sort of thickness around 300 microns or more within that center. And believe it or not, these patients can actually be 2020 to 2025 visual acuity, which later on goes to discuss as to should we be treating these patients or not with good visual acuity. The non-center involved is right outside the 500 area of micron in that central circle of the OCT. And the question becomes with those, should we be treating those? Is laser an option in those patients or can we monitor? So just for the people at home to understand, you could have macular edema, but not have proliferative diabetic retinopathy. If you could make the distinction between the two. Sure. A proliferative diabetes stage is a staging of the diabetes. We talked about the non-proliferative, which are the stagings without any neovascularization or signs of neo, as Dr. Diaz had very eloquently stated, the fibrosis, the vitreous hemorrhage, uh, and so on. The non-proliferative stage is all the stages that we discussed, where we talked about hemorrhages and exudates and column wool spot. Having any kind of fluid in the central part of your vision, that macula, that real estate, perfect real estate, that becomes diabetic macular edema. Now, there is chances of increasing with more worsening of stage, but we've seen DME in patients with mild or moderate NPDR, and we've seen no DME in patients with proliferative disease. So, Dr. Diaz, this is, you know, I don't know if there's a correct answer for this, but you're the one that has to make the decision. So I see a patient, they have diabetes and we do an OCT and they have a big area of macular edema, but their vision is still 2020 or 2025. Do you treat these people or do you not treat them? And if you do, what, what kind of treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, one that I answer almost on a daily basis. And, you know, if the patient has 20, 25 or better vision, I tend to observe these patients, especially if I'm seeing them for the first time, they were referred in with diabetic macular edema. And as far as they know, they have zero complaints. You ask them, they're like, my vision's fine. I don't know why I'm here. And, you know, I start the conversation with them where I'm like, you know, if you have inflammation, you have swelling of the retinal layers, and this over time may cause vision to go down. And we know from the protocol, protocol V data, that outcomes were about the same at two years, whether or not they were treated with injections, laser, or just observation. So I think it's, I, I, I like to tell the patients, this is a sort of a wake up call. Um, if we can control, you know, work on our sugars, work on the diabetes, and maybe this, that we won't need injections in the future. We won't need treatment. Um, um, and I just, I bring them back in six to eight weeks and just follow them again. I think it's important to have these patients seen by a retina specialist because that conversation needs to be started. And I don't like having to see a patient and first visit being like laser PRP, we need to work on this quickly. I want to you know, try and at least modify their disease a little bit by encouraging understanding and maybe a, sh a shift in, in lifestyle and, 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 uh, and so forth. So I tend to observe, um, but if the other eye has gone downhill, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll treat a little sooner and I'll talk to them and saying that I'm worried that things are not getting better and so forth. MacU Health. Your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. So if you see that big area of edema, that big blister on the OCT, do you ever see that go away? It can. It, it can definitely go away. And I think that, it, you know, whether it's the better diabetic control, whether it's really related to just flux, you know, and, and how much how much you're leaking that day, for example, um, I think that is variable. And also having more data points helps. I'll bring them back, take another photo, look at the OCT again and kind of see which way they're going. If it's getting worse, but their vision is still fine, then I might be pushing a little bit more to like, maybe we should start treatment here because I'm, a, you know, I'm worried that the next time I see it's going to be even worse and your vision will be affected. And let's talk about the different treatments for uh, macular edema. So let's start off with laser. Uh, is grid laser still used anymore? And what, how does laser help uh, macular edema? Or is it not really, is more of a third line treatment at this point? Yeah, well, you know, I think that uh, uh, the use of focal laser for diabetic macular edema has gone down over the last few decades. I think with the availability of NSAID-VEGF agents and how effective they are. I mean, you have to remember we're doing focal, we're causing focal scars in the macula, which, you know, if, 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 if depending on where we're lasering, there's a risk for, you know, involving the fovea uh, over time with RPE creep and so forth. You have to be very careful. So I would say there is a role for it. 
Um, if you see that focal uh, microaneurysm and you see that circinate ring of exudates and you know that the leaking is coming from that specific aneurysm and it's sufficiently far away from the fovea, then I think doing focal laser might obviate the need for numerous injections down the line. And I think that's sort of the most uh, beautiful case scenario for focal laser. Uh, but oftentimes that's not the case and it's sort of diffuse leakage. You don't know where it's coming from. The FA can be, if you manage to get an FA and it's, it's not so clear, then doing grid laser, you know, and potentially wiping out some of their vision causing a scotoma, then I think that's where uh, things might get a little more tough. And I think that's where the role of anti-VEGF and steroids has really taken off. So if we look at the anti-VEGF treatment, we have Avastin, we have Ilea, we have Lucentis. Does it matter which one you use? You know, I, it, I think that we have a bit of data that shows that in patients who present with initially worse visual acuity, maybe 2050 or worse, that a Fliverset uh, was shown to have a, a, a higher gain in vision. I think this is from the protocol T data. Um, so I, I'm a fan of ILEA in patients who present with poor vision. Uh, otherwise, Avastin is a great medication and oftentimes a first line for me. Um, and I see patients oftentimes respond very well to that. So you do have, I think by having choices, it, it, it makes it better because you can tailor it more personalized to the patient and, and to the current specific condition. But um, um, Avastin is fantastic. And so is Lucensis. If you could explain how the anti-VEGF treatment works, actually works by getting rid of the macular gene, how does that happen? Well, it, it's all about modulating the cytokine profile in the eye and by um, decreasing the pro-inflammatory mediators in the eye. Um, and over time, just causing a reconstitution of the small blood vessels that might have been damaged from the, from the ischemic damage from diabetes. So, you know, we know that the VEGF levels, uh, you know, stay in the eye for about four weeks or so. Um, and we do see a peak response after about maybe two weeks or so uh, with each of the agents. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's all targeted sort of at the uh, basement membrane and just uh, reconstituting the integrity of the blood vessels. Um, and, you know, each of the, the different types of treatments, for example, we know Avastin is a full antibody. We know that uh, Lucentis is a, is a monoclonal humanized antibody fragment and ILEA is sort of a recombinant fusion protein. So, you know, they all have different sizes. They all have potentially theoretically different levels of penetration into the retinal tissues, which can also um, uh, impact a little bit of, of, of their effectiveness. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just about getting into the eye to try and uh, decrease the amount of vascular permeability. And the side effect profile, we talk about the possibility at the beginning for systemic, but as far as ocular side effects, do you, do you ever see much side effects from these medications? You know, thankfully, no. I mean, we know that, you know, the, the, the scariest one being uh, the risk of endophthalmitis or uh, an infection from the, from the injection itself. Um, I think the, what I tell the patients is that they're most commonly going to see a probably subconjunctival hemorrhage. Um, they might notice some increased floaters from the medication, for example. Um, and then I warn them about the, the signs and symptoms of endophthalmitis. Um, but for the most part, it seems to be pretty well tolerated and um, um, thankfully effective as well. You think we'll see a topical drop of anti-VEGF medication in our future? I mean, I, I hope so. Uh, unfortunately, I think at the end of the day, it's all about penetration and, um, you know, uh, whether or not it can actually make it to the posterior pole in sufficient quantities to actually cause uh, a, a change uh, is, is left to be seen. I think that there's been exploration of supercoroidal treatment uh, delivery methods, um, uh, which is pretty exciting. But once again, there's certain risks associated with that as well. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, uh, you know, extended duration of treatment is, is I think, the goal here for these patients. It, this is a very uh, life-altering condition uh, with frequent doctor visits, and uh, um, uh, which can affect, you know, their livelihood. And how about steroids, Ozodex, and in the future, uh, I, 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 uh, I, I live in, uh, if you could talk about that. Yeah, you know, steroids uh, work uh, very well. We know that it's not just VEGF here that um, uh, is causing uh, the problem. We know there's numerous other inflammatory cytokines that are not being targeted or dealt with with anti-VEGF specific injections with Avastin, Lucentis, or ILEA, for example. Um, and steroids do very well. 
uh, in managing all the other um, uh, potential cytokines that are involved. And I, I oftentimes, I, it's not my first line treatment because of the associated risks with using steroids, IOP rise, cataract formation, and so forth. Um, but in patients who, do, who are, are deemed not responders to VEGF therapy, um, I don't hesitate to get them started on it because it can work and it can be pretty dramatic um, in, in a lot of these patients. Um, and it's, you know, thankfully the, the Ozerdex implant lasts for about maybe three months or so in the eye. Alluvian is touted to last up to 36 months in duration. You know, you do have elevated cataract formation rates. You have to talk about this with the patients. Um, and of course, you know, the risk of needing incisional glaucoma surgery down the line is also something that should be discussed, but it's, it's helpful to have these tools in our toolbox to deal with patients who are not responding as well as we would hope. And Iluvian, is it, is it available yet or it's not? Yes, yes, Iluvian is available. And is it something that you've uh, used as of yet? You know, personally for diabetics, I have not used it. Um, I've, I've, I've used Ozerdex and usually that's been enough. And, um, you know, patients, uh, I've had it last for up to four or five months in the eye sometimes, depending on the patient. So I have not found the need yet um, to jump into Iluvian. Um, but, uh, um, I'm sure there's a patient out there that could probably benefit from it. I can tell you from my old surgeons, they did use Alluvian just once or twice on a patient. Problem is it's almost 100% cataracts, no matter what, for sure. And the increase intraocular pressure in those, maybe even needing surgery is much higher. Uh, with Ozerdix, it's actually relatively safe with the patients. And most of the time, uh, if they glaucoma, if they do develop intraocular pressure rise, it can be treated with anti-glaucoma medication, especially because it's short lasting. And what percentage would you say develop elevated intraocular pressure? Say maybe there could be a chance of as high as one third from the studies, but I don't, I, from the ones that I've seen, and my old surgeon used to do quite a few of them. I didn't really see it that bad. And I believe that you can do pretty much a test to see if the patient will be susceptible. So a patient can be put on a steroid for about a month and just a topical steroid to see if they're susceptible for increase in intraocular pressure. What, a bit, what about you, Dr. Diaz? Yeah, I mean, I oftentimes, I like using Durazol as a test, yeah. um, you know, and uh, I'll know pretty quickly whether or not this patient is a higher risk. And if I know they're an IOP responder, then I might be, I might shy away from using it. And would you say it correlates pretty well with Durazol, the pressure going up? I think so. I mean, there's has pretty good penetration um, into the eye. And I think that if you, if you don't have a pressure increase or pressure response to Durazol, I think that I feel, I feel pretty good that, you know, something like an alluvian, which is a very low, you know, much lower dose and over a longer period of time that I think you'll probably be fine. Now, this is a, this is a tough question because everybody's different, but if a patient is diabetic, they have no eye changes. How often do you recommend they're seen in the eye doctor's office? Uh, Dr. Shackman, I'll start with you. I still say once a year, uh, definitely. They're a high-risk patient who can develop changes. And I have seen patients that within a year develop into more moderate or even severe stage within a very short period of time. So I say a year for sure. And uh, Dr. Diaz, if they have a little bit of diabetic, maybe a couple hemorrhages, how often do you think the optometrists, you know, the people that are referring to you uh, would you recommend that they see these patients? Because typically you're not going to see these people. You're going to see that when the wheels are coming off the bus. Right. Yeah. You know, if they're in a mild or even a moderate, you know, you're talking every six months, six to nine months or so. Uh, once again, depending on the patient and sort of how fast this has been happening for them, right? If you can tell that, this, you know, you, you have a fundus photo from a year ago and there was nothing there and all of a sudden you have exudates and hemorrhages, then you, I would watch them a lot more closely. And how about diabetics, Dr. Shuckman and, and LASIK? What kind of, what kind of uh, advice do you give your diabetics who want to get LASIK? We, you know, there, there's been some controversies out there because we know diabetes affects full, we, we always talk about diabetic retinopathy, but we forget that diabetes affects the entire eye. We can get cataracts early onset from diabetes. You can get a decreased wound healing, dry eyes. Uh, intraocular mobility problems, um, optic neuropathies. So we kind of forget about the cornea, which is very susceptible, particularly with all those nerves. Can the patient get LASIK? I say yes, but there are patients who probably may be more at risk for any issues with wound healing and more than anything, dry eyes, I think it's, it's an impact. But I don't think it's a contraindication from ever getting LASIK. Dr. Diaz, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, you know, I think I think the patient just has to understand here. You know, I think that um, if they're trying to get classes independence or super high myop here, and it's just for quality of life, I think that it's a it's an individualized um, decision. If if on the other hand uh, they've had issues with diabetic retinopathy and had treatment and so forth, and I'd be very wary to probably recommend it, um, just by you know, understanding that even the fact of having LASIK, and let's say you have some fibrovascular proliferation in the back, I mean, you know, the pressure goes up to 120 sometimes during some of these procedures, and you might have complications even related to that. So it's individualized. And I think as, as long as they understand that um, um, there might be further problems down the road, I think that's, that's okay. But you're just, you're just trying to educate them. And Dr. Sharkman, contact lenses and diabetics. <laughs> You do know I'd never fit a contact lens. <laughs> I think Dr. Diaz is more likely to fit one than I did to get an abrasion. Um, but I, I think it's the same thing. Intolerance, uh, dry eyes, those kinds of perspectives. Uh, we have increased thickening of the mem uh, of the cornea. So in and of itself, it makes them more susceptible to more intolerance. But again, I don't think it's a contraindication, but contact lens group by any means. And how about... <laughs> It is, you know, a lot of patients are on aspirin, you know, for prevention of cardiovascular disease. Is aspirin contraindicated in somebody with, di with, di with diabetic retinopathy, Dr. Diaz? No, uh, not contraindicated at all. And I think given the uh, cardiovascular literature and all the benefits of aspirin related to that, I think they're probably better off that they're on it than not. Uh, pr pregnancy and diabetes, uh, Dr. Diaz. How do you how do you treat the pregnant uh, women a little bit different? Uh, what do you see with pregnancy and diabetes? Oh, Dr. Shackman, you're getting that, that that sound again. I'm getting the sound. I'm not even next to it. All right. Can you, am I okay now? Oh, you know what it was? Was my piece of paper. We're good now. Okay, good. So you know that diabetes and pregnancy can be tough. It really depends on what stage of their uh, pregnancy they're at and uh, how severe their diabetic retinopathy might be, right? Uh, the use of NTVEGF here is, is definitely controversial. And uh, I personally do not use it. I would offer them steroid treatment if, if it's you know, vision threatening. But I also, I tell them that whatever we can do to get you to, to the birth of the baby as soon as possible without having to need treatment, I think is best. If you can get them to that stage without having to start a treatment, I think that's safest. Um, but if they need it, you know, steroids are probably my first line treatment here. Um, and then once again, it's just about educating them and then just telling them about the options that you have and the risk associated with each one. And how, uh, how about as far as dialing the pupil, Dr. Shackman? I know some of our colleagues may be a little bit hesitant to, to dilate a, uh, a pregnant uh, woman, female. What do you think? I've never been hesitant to dilate a patient if I really did worry or question. I could do punctal occlusion. I can do trapecomida only. Um, the first semester is usually, the first trimester is usually what you are more at risk for developing changes in diabetic retinopathy. If you do feel uncomfortable, at least getting a great optos image, I think it's important. And we all get, we can get pretty proficient at looking, these are younger patients through pretty much small mid-dilated pupils. Uh, so I, I think it depends on their comfort level. I think Dr. Diaz would probably dilate a patient, even if they dilate them into the fundus and deliver the baby and then charge them right afterwards <laughs> too. <laughs> but what about you, Dr. Diaz? <laughs> Uh, off the off the topic of diabetes for a second, before I get into the last question, uh, Di Dr. Diaz, all of a sudden I've seen a few patients who have central serous throughout my whole career. People with central serous has resolved. All of a sudden, I'm seeing these central serous that are lasting and not resolving and damaging the photoreceptors. Uh, what's do you know what's going on? I know you wrote a paper on central serous, and I was wondering if you had any idea what's happening with these people. You know, it's it's tough to say. I think that um, you know, whenever I see a patient with central serous that I believe might be chronic or involving both eyes, you know, I really I really hone into uh, what may have caused it. And oftentimes, you push patients. Yeah, they maybe had that. Uh, lumbar spinal uh, cortical steroid injection, or they're still getting injections for arthritis and so forth. So I think that making sure that they're not, there's not something you can modify, 
that can immediately, you know, perhaps improve their condition is going to be first, you know, first and foremost. Um, if there really is nothing, you know, no exogenous testosterone use, corticosteroid injections or sprays, if, if their social stressors are not being, are, are already controlled, then unfortunately it might just be the natural history in that specific patient. Um, these are very challenging conditions to treat. I tell all my CSR patients that we don't have any great proven treatments for this condition. Um, it, the best thing we can probably do is avoid it from happening. So I, I counsel them off the get-go uh, regarding, you know, stress relieving uh, practices, uh, what to avoid in the future as far as uh, corticosteroid medications is concerned. Uh, I don't want to get to that point is basically what I tell the patients. Um, you know, if it does get to that point where we need to consider something, PDT is probably what I would recommend, half fluence or um, half dose. Um, uh, but once again, you know, if you're at that point, it's, it, things are not looking great to begin with. Explain PDT for, for our audience. So photodynamic therapy, um, uh, it's actually one of the first initial treatments for, uh, age-related macular degeneration. And basically what you're trying to do is occlude the choroidal blood vessels, uh, by using a, uh, um, uh, a dye that's stimulated, um, um, with ultraviolet light. And um, it's, it's, it's quite the procedure. You have to uh, warn the patient about potential side effects from exposure to vertiporphyrin. Uh, um, you can have blister-like reactions if it comes in contact with the skin. It has to be, the tubing has to be shielded in, in, um, uh, to prevent uh, re reactivation with outside light, for example. Um, and there's always the dreaded uh, complication that we all worry about, which is choroidal infarction. Uh, at which point, you know, a vision's gone, you know, depending on where it occurs. So it's, it's to me, it's a sort of a last, uh, last step type of thing. Um, um, but it can work. And I've seen cases where you have resolution of the subvenal fluid and the PEDs and um, vision loss can be stabilized. Um, but you have to be very careful. I mean, it's, 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 uh, um, uh, it's something that I, I reserve for patients who have not spontaneously improved. Dr. Shackman, one question before I get to, for you, before I get to my last question. P patients with posterior vitreous attachment that are seeing that big floater, the retina is okay, and they always want something to get rid of the floater. Do you have any tricks? I tell them they have to be friends with these lovely floaters. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, I don't have tricks, but actually uh, Dr. Diaz does have a couple of tricks up his sleeve. Uh, there is a uh, YAG vitrolysis and there is fluorectomy. One of my surgeons uh, actually used to do quite a fair amount of fluorectomies, which is nothing more than a vitrectomy. Um, but the problem here is you're putting the patient a 20-20 eye at a high risk of developing a retinal detachment. And some of them did develop complications. The key thing about this is when it is effective, it's incredibly effective, but you have to identify the right patient. So before you recommend sending a patient over for a fluorectomy, I usually give them a little bit of what I call off a cool off time. I have a floater myself. And at the beginning, it drove me absolutely nutty. But but after a while, it's like a bad boyfriend and you get used to them. You, you get used to that friend of yours and it kind of settles down and you don't see them as much every so often you visit. But if our people who are really are very um, affected by it, there are wonderful questionnaires that one can really determine you do an ultrasound and an OCT on FOSS to look at them objectively. And if it's been about two or three months, and I know doctors in the area who may be practicing on fluorectomy, I'm Dr. Diaz, I would recommend it to them to maybe potentially consider doing it. There are some patients who are very detrimental by them. Dr. Dr. Diaz? Diaz? Yeah, you know, it, uh, it's, it's actually an up and coming topic now uh, in the retina community. Um, I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see more and more of these over the next uh, five, 10 years or so. But once again, it comes down to patient selection, right? We know that there's an element of neuroadaptation with floaters. I tell patients, you know, give me nine months, I'll bring you back. If this is really a life altering uh, experience for you, then we can, we can consider maybe doing uh, surgery, but, but I, I, I don't rush into it. Right. I mean, the, the retina surgery is very, very delicate. And although outcomes are pretty good, um, there's always a risk of something going on. And in a patient with the 2020 eye, otherwise, it's just something that I, I wouldn't want to see. So I, I start, I developed a relationship. I talked to them. I tell them that let's see how, let's see if anything happens. Let's um, see how you look in six, nine months and then continue talking to them. Oftentimes, most of the times they got smaller, they forgot about it. They'll still occasionally see it and everything's fine. What is the laser treatment that they do for it? How effective is it? And is it like uh, shooting uh, fish in a barrel? 
Yeah, you know, to, to be honest, I don't have a lot of experience with it. I haven't really seen it myself, but uh, you know, it, it's a YAG laser, which is a photo disruptive laser, and you're sort of blasting whatever you can, whatever vitreous fields you can see. You know, I, I you know, I have a distinct memory of a of a video that I think was presented at a Retina conference where the YAG laser was focused too far too far posteriorly, and they caused a uh, superchoroidal hemorrhage. Uh, from from inadvertent uh, damage from the laser. So it's certainly higher risk. I mean, you're not really getting rid of the floaters, right? You're making them smaller, presumably. So it's not really a, uh, a definitive treatment in my, in my eyes. Like they did to my kidney stones. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my last question, and you guys have been great and uh, this is terrific. And I want to ask you, what recommendations do you have to prevent people out there if they just started getting diabetes, maybe to reverse it or, or help them from preventing getting diabetes. So Dr. Diaz, we'll start with you and Dr. Shackman, you could, you could uh, chime in at the end. I, I personally, I think it's all about relationships. I think that if you are recently diagnosed with diabetes, you have to make sure that you're developing a partnership with your provider, right? Whether that's your primary care provider and your other ancillary providers, um, you need to be comfortable. You need to make sure you're, you have a trusting relationship with them because, uh, you know, this is a lifelong condition. If you do not get along with them or you feel like there's some disconnect there, find someone else um, because this is not something you want to you wait on. Um, if you're not yet diabetic and you want to try and prevent it, I mean, it's all about lifetime modifications, right? Get moving. We know that insulin resistance is a big key. You know, we know that weight loss is important here. We got to reanalyze our dietary habits uh, um, and so forth. And uh, just being aware of it. I mean, this is something that we're going to be dealing with a lot in the next coming decades. And, um, you know, you want to try and do as much as you can to prevent it. Dr. Shackman. You know, I think you you had alluded to a lot of this, and it's so true. I usually like to quote Benjamin Franklin when he said, "One, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If we stop the diabetes from ever starting, we stop the pre-diabetic from becoming diabetic. We stop the insulin resistant from becoming pre-diabetic. We're stopping the disease. Once the disease starts, it's going to go a course of progression. So I talk to patients and I counsel them about uh, standing up more, moving more. I don't need them to go join a gym, but taking a couple of steps. We all have these app, our phones, our iPhones, kind of almost challenging yourself to take up more steps. Trying to eat more frequently, smaller meals, I think are really important. Try not to skip breakfast. I think breakfast is incredibly crucial for diabetics. It's all about your insulin and your insulin has to be moving and taking care of the right amount of food. Um, fasting is not the best unless you're doing some sort of fast from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m., but you really want to start eating more frequently and, of course, trying to make those lifestyle changes. But I also tell them, be realistic. If you want to have a little piece of cake at a party, you enjoy it, but you don't have to have the whole entire cake. And then you also try to make better choices throughout. And I think by educating them with photos and they can actually see some of these changes. And when they come back, they see lesson of this, they reward themselves. I think that's really important too. And I think that helps them motivate them to become part of their own management plan. It's much easier to retain the vision that you have to regain it later with Dr. Diaz's injections. So I wanna thank Dr. Diaz and Dr. Sheckman for joining me today. Dr. Sheckman is a wonderful educator. I've, I've seen her speak many, many times. She's a tremendous speaker. Dr. Diaz, you have such a wonderful way about you. You have a very conservative approach and I think patients really like that. So if people wanna find out more about you, Dr. Diaz, and they wanna visit you as a patient, how could they do that? So, you know, I'm currently seeing patients uh pretty much all across the South Florida area. So I'm currently with the Ice Centers of South Florida. I'm in the process of opening my own practice down South in Miami. Um, so um, that should be up and going pretty soon. But uh, quick Google and I think you'll run across me. Dr. Shackman, how can we find uh, you? I have the great pleasure of working with Dr. Diaz, Dr. Hoffman and various other doctors at Ice Centers of South Florida, both at North Miami Beach and uh, Fort Lauderdale. But if anyone has any questions, I'm always happy to talk and discuss and I can relate them to Dr. Diaz. So you can email me at dianashe at comcast.net and I'm always happy to continue educating. We're here to serve our patients and to work together. Well, I wanna thank you for joining me today. You guys have been amazing. This is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. 
We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OYEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you can screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.